All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 335, and today we are talking about books being released on November 2nd, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Danica, hello! Hello! How's it going? Good, how about you? All right, I hear that it's very rainy in Vancouver, like it is here. Yeah, it has been, for sure. The last few days it was, and not just like kind of raining, but pouring, which yeah. I love. It's perfect reading weather. <laughs> oh, well, I guess if you don't have to go out of the house, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that does make it pretty okay. I never go out of the house, so it's fine. Like, whatever right? it's doing, I don't care. <laughs> um, we had our first frost last night, which was, I did have to leave the house very early this morning, which I was not happy about. Like, scraping it with my mittens. Oh, no. The windshield, like... <laughs> I was like, I wasn't expecting this. Yeah. Oh, but we have some exciting news today. We are announcing Adaptation Nation. Don't forget to check out our new podcast, Adaptation Nation. It's all about TV and film adaptations of your favorite books. On Book Riot's new podcast, Adaptation Nation, we read it, we watch it, and we talk about it. That's right. Book Riot is taking on your favorite literary adaptations, including new releases, old favorites, underrated gems, and interesting messes. We'll dive into how the books and adaptations themselves came to be, publication and production backstories, casting what-ifs, critical reception, and more to answer that ever-burning question, was the book actually better, and does that question even matter? It's going to be so much fun. Yeah. First up, Jeff, the co-host of the Book Riot podcast, uh, and Amanda and Jen, the hosts of Get Books, will be breaking down the sci-fi classic Dune and the new adaptation, uh, which I just watched recently and have lots of thoughts about, so I'm looking forward to listening to this. And you can subscribe on your podcast catcher, podcatcher of choice, podcast listener, I don't know what those words are, <laughs> um, starting November 1st. So, yay! Do you have a, a favorite adaptation? Like, do you have any adaptations that you think were equal or better than the book that you read? Yeah, I don't know if it's better, but I really enjoyed The Handmaiden as an adaptation of Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. It takes this book that's set in Victorian England and it moves it to South Korea during the Japanese occupation. And it's fascinating because it works really well in that different setting and it Mm -hmm. also gets a new ending and I just feel like they're kind of in conversation with each other in a really cool way. The BBC did like a a much more straightforward adaptation which was good but I just yeah it's one that I really like to think about and discuss so I think that would be my favorite because it really added to the book experience. What about you? Do you have a favorite? Well, first, I you just reminded me that I still need to watch that. I oh, remember, you like, have to. like every few months, I remember, like, oh yeah, I wanted to watch The Handmaiden, and then I forget <laughs> because you know my brain is doing fifty things at one time. <laughs> but you know, I have a couple of books that I think were terrible books and amazing films. The first being mm-hmm. Jaws. Jaws is you know very famous book, just not not good. But the the movie is amazing, just absolutely incredible. But my other favorite is Die Hard. Like a lot of people don't mm-hmm. know. Still, that Die Hard was adapted from a novel. It actually was like a novel from 1979, which was the sequel to a novel from 1966. The first, the author is Roderick Thorpe, and he wrote a book called The Detective, which was made into a film in 1968. And in the books, the the character's name is not John McClane, it's Joe Leland. 
And in the 68 film of the first book, Frank Sinatra plays like the John McLean character. Um, oh. And it's very, very different. And in Nothing Lasts Forever, the, the one that Die Hard was adapted from, there's very little resemblance to the book. So it's almost like it's not even the same thing. So I don't know if I should be going like, it's the best adaptation. But it totally counts because <laughs> he made up some of it. And I just love Die Hard. And I'm a total Die Hard nerd. I watch all of the films every Christmas. The first two are good. The th- bottom three are not. But I still, <laughs> like, watch them anyway. It's like, a, it's like you know, tradition. But, I mean, I could just talk about Die Hard forever. Like, did you know that Die Hard was Alan Rickman's first motion picture role? His first role. Like, not in anything. I mean, he was on stage and he was in some TV stuff, but, like, that was his very first movie. And nailed it. Just amazing. (laughs) I'm going to stop talking about Die Hard now because we're going to talk about books today. But uh, before we do that, we are going to hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so I am very excited about all of my books today. I do have to say that the first three that I'm going to talk about, I read between 11 and 14 months ago. So uh, any mistakes and details are my own, and I apologize in advance. But I think I, I think I got them. I got it right. Uh, my first pick today is one, oh my goodness, I love it. It's A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsk. And it's like... A gay Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. It's magic and Edwardian England. Magic is real. And it's witty and fun. 
So to start off with, like I said, magic is real in this place. And Robin Heath is one of the main characters. He's a baron. His parents have died. And now he's in charge of the estate and taking care of business. And, like, things are not good. They don't have a lot of money. And he's trying to, like, figure out how he's going to make things work. And he's looking after his younger siblings. and I mean, like, younger, like, you know, older teenagers, 20s, like, not, like, little kids. And through a friend of his parents, he is assigned to this role as the... Assistant in the Office of Special Domestic Affairs and Complaints. And so he shows up for his first day of work, and he doesn't know anything about it. Just knows, like, he's given this office, and he's sitting there, and he hasn't been there very long. And the thing that he doesn't realize is that, well, like, first of all, due to some clerical error slash poor timing, the person who usually appoints these positions in this office is out. So somebody with not a lot of um, understanding of the position assigns him to this to this job. And what we know that he doesn't know is that his predecessor, Reginald, has been gone for a fortnight. He's missing. And so he's given his job. And what ends up happening is that Robin is actually the liaison to the magic ministry. And he doesn't know at all until the very steely and serious Edwin Corsi shows up in his office for an appointment. First, he thinks like he's showing up to meet Reggie because he hears that the, you know, assistant is back in his office. So they're like, oh, he's like, oh, Reggie's back because he knows that Reggie has been missing. But when he shows up, he gets Robin and he's like, oh, what is this? And as he's talking to Robin, he realizes that, like, not only does he not know what he's doing in this position, he doesn't know that magic is real, which is the point of the position. It's somebody who doesn't possess magic, but they know magic is real, hence being like the liaison between the two. So... He's kind of irritated, and he explains a bit about magic to Robin, but he's like, I don't really have time for this. Uh, he is surprised, though. Edwin is surprised that by Robin's nonchalance in the face of being told that magic is a real thing and seeing some examples of it happening. He, he does a couple of little tricks. And, you know, because he's like, don't you want to, like, scream or, you know, think, like, you know, you must be losing your mind, like, seeing all this happening? And he's like, meh. Not really. He's He's been having a rough time and he just doesn't have it in him to be like, magic is real? So he's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And Robin is also annoyed. He's like, how did I get put in this position? But he's going to try and work it all out. But what he doesn't know that we do is that in the very opening of the book, we know what happened to Reggie and it wasn't good. And it was because he was in the position that Robin is now in. And so before Robin really has some time to, like, work through getting a transfer or, you know, trying to decide what he's going to do in this job, he's approached by strangers who put a painful curse on him. And the man the man in charge of these strangers is looking for something, something that could be very destructive in the wrong hands. It's magical, and he wants Robin to help him find it. So now Robin goes to Edwin, who's like, oh, this guy again. And he asks him to help him get rid of this painful curse. And, you know, they decide, like, this is what's going on. And they have to stop the bad guys. I don't want to tell you any more about it because I don't want to ruin it. But I adored this novel from beginning to end. Starting with the cover. Like, the cover is pink and fluorescent Kraft macaroni and cheese orange. And just amazing. And it's sexy. It's remarkably funny. It's a little scary. I didn't figure out who the bad guy was or what was going on. So that is always a bonus for me. Robin and Edwin have amazing chemistry that they can only deny for so long. And then it's sexy times. The book has a great magic system. You know, like I explained, like some people have it. And usually 
The thing about Robin's family is that usually someone in the family has magic, and because no one in his family did, that's why he didn't know that it existed. There's a hilarious scene where Edwin brings Robin to his family's estate, and it turns into this mishap with the magic game that they play, which just made me chuckle and chuckle. I do want to give content warnings for torture, violence, and death. I loved this book so much. It is A Marvelous Light by Freya Marsk. You had me at gay Jonathan Strange and Mr. <laughs> right? It's so good. All right. My first book is Blue Skinned Gods by S.J. Sindhu. So I really enjoyed the author's previous book, Marriage of a yes. Thousand Lies. So good. So I was excited to pick this one up. It follows Kalki, who's a boy in India with blue skin, who is the last reincarnation of Vishnu, the incarnation after Jesus or the Buddha, depending on who you ask. At least that's what he's been raised to believe. He lives in an ashram where people come to receive his blessings and healing, and his father knows exactly what his life will be like because it's all prophesied. He will pass his three trials, and then he'll travel the world on a grand healing tour. And Kalki's 10th birthday is supposed to be when he comes into the majority of his power, but it's also when he begins to have doubts. Is he really a god? And if not, have his parents been lying to him his whole life? And who is he if not a god? It's told from the perspective of Kalki's adult self, who is a lecturer in Toronto, so we kind of understand what happens in the end, even from the beginning. It's a coming-of-age story and a quiet exploration of identity, despite the big premise. There's a lot of foreshadowing of Kalki offhandedly mentioning something that would happen 30 years later, and that works really well because I had no idea where the story was going. For the most part, it's just this person wandering through his life trying to figure himself out, except that he's also surrounded by people who believe he can perform miracles. He lives a really sheltered life as a child with every element of it controlled by his abusive father, and he doesn't know what happens outside of the walls of the ashram. When visitors begin to arrive as tourists from other places in the world, he slowly begins to be exposed to new ideas, especially through the books that they bring. He starts to understand that regardless of whether he's a god, his father does not have all the answers, no matter what he claims. His appa's abuse of him and his mother can make this a difficult read. If Kalki doesn't perform the miracles his father promised, his father will claim it's because he didn't believe enough or because he wasn't trying hard enough or because his mother is spending too much time on painting and distracting them. What I appreciated most about Blue Skinned Gods is that the characters all feel like real people in the center of their own stories. Although we see Kalki's Ama from his perspective, we can also see how this narrative plays out in her version of the story. At some point, she tells him, I was so young when I married him. And we can see her not just as his mother, but also as her own person with her own struggles and regrets. As Kalki explores his identity, he becomes exposed to people who move through the world differently and especially begins to understand how misogyny, the caste system, and other systems of oppression marginalize people. He becomes friends with a Tarunage person, a Tamil third gender category, and later we find out that she becomes a well-known trans rights activist. So she also exists outside of just educating him or being a love interest. There are lots of queer side characters, especially in the latter half of the novel, and Kelki is likely bisexual, though he doesn't identify with any particular label. 
Even as he grows up, he finds himself passively going along with situations, unsure of what he wants for himself or who he is. So most of the story is just him trying to understand what to do and be when it's not being dictated to him. I do want to give content warnings for illness, abuse, including physical abuse, suicide, cutting, and blood. This was a thoughtful and fascinating story about identity. So if you want to read about the life of a child god with blue skin, pick up Blue Skinned Gods by S.J. Sindhu. All right. I was excited to hear you talk about that one because I haven't gotten to it yet. Oh, I think you'd like it. (laughs) But I I keep meaning to because I do love the previous novel, Marriage of a Thousand Lies. I thought that was so great. Yeah. I'm going to keep going with a very, very, very dark thriller. It's called The Collective by Alison Galen, and it's fantastic. But I want to just mention again that it's very dark and there's going to be a lot of content warnings because of the very nature of the story. Uh, So hold on to your butts while I talk about this. So five years ago, uh, there was a woman named Camille. And five years ago, uh, the college student who was responsible for Camille's teenage daughter's death was acquitted. Uh, There was an incident at a frat house. Her daughter died. The boy was the son of very wealthy Uh, connected people, and he's acquitted for her death. So the loss of her daughter, coupled with getting no justice for her daughter's death, has left Camille angry and just reeling. Uh, Her marriage has dissolved because of it. Uh, Many of her friends have stopped calling her, and she's become an alcoholic, and all she does is obsess over her daughter's killer. Until the day, uh, there's an incident that sparks this, which I'm not going to mention, and Because of this, she's invited to a website for grieving mothers. And there, she finds women like herself that she can talk to who do not want to move on or get over it like people keep telling them that they need to. These women want to openly discuss their anger and their revenge fantasies about the people responsible for the death of their children and loved ones without fear or judgment. And so that's what they do. And she's finding this kind of cathartic. But then she gets a special invitation And someone sends her an invite to the dark web where she goes and she finds a new website that tells her that these revenge fantasies could become a reality. And suddenly she finds herself involved in anonymous vigilante justice. She's talking to these people on the dark web. She doesn't know who they are. They tell her that in return for doing a series of small tasks that will add up to larger outcomes, they will help her get revenge on on the boy responsible for her daughter's death. But after a little while, Camille begins to worry that maybe an eye for an eye is not the answer. But now that she's in with this dangerous group and she doesn't know who she can trust, like, is she going to be able to leave? This was so compelling. I sat down and read it so quickly. It has a kind of strangers on a train feel, but instead, like, there's a whole bunch of people involved instead of just two. I loved how the internet is a part of it. I love technology in mysteries, you know, updated technology. You know, it plays a role in the collective's work because the collect the title of the collective comes from the name of the group that carries out this vigilante justice. I thought the book made really great points about grief, like who decides that there's a limit on grief and how long people can grieve. Galen also highlights very real occurrences, such as the lack of justice for many, many victims. And the ending. Whew. So the ending is going to be very divisive. It's so incredible, but I can't wait to hear what people think about the ending because I was like, boom, mind blown. And I thought it was really great, but 
it, it, whew, this whole book is a ride. So now, here come those warnings I told you about. Because it is about people who are grieving the loss of loved ones who died in many different ways, you know, there is mention of a lot of terrible things in this book, including child murder, suicide, sexual assault and bullying, loss of a child, car accidents and death caused by a car, murder, drowning, chemical use and abuse and death by overdose, death by medical negligence, grief, trauma and death by falling. Whew. This is The Collective by Allison Galen. Just saying that an ending, it's divisive, always makes me so intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm so curious to hear what people think of the ending. Uh, and, and, you know, like, let me know if you read it, like, what you thought about it. Because it's my kind of ending, but it might not be everyone's kind of ending. But I loved it. I might have to ask you after this what the ending okay. is. <laughs> no, I'm just so I'm curious. not going to tell you. $5. I'll tell you for $5. <laughs> That's fair. That's a fair price. <laughs> All right. My next pick is Briar Girls by Rebecca Kim Wells. This is a YA fantasy book about Lena, a girl who kills everyone she touches. Her parents have been keeping her her hidden, moving around a lot when things get dicey, until one day her mother leaves and never comes back. The witch who cursed Lena is still looking for her, so her father has strict rules to keep her safe. It's not much of a life. She has no friends and rarely leaves the house. In their latest move, her father is hired to be the watcher of a forest called The Silence. People keep getting pulled into the woods, and if they return, they're changed, endlessly singing the same song and wanting to go back. Her father's job is to keep people out of the silence, but when Lena sneaks away one night to get a peek, she finds someone running out of the woods instead. Miranda is injured and being chased, so Lena and her father take her in. But Miranda is from Gather, a magical city, and she promises that a cure to Lena's curse could be found there. Miranda will take her if Lena agrees to help her find and awake the sleeping princess who is prophesied to bring down their tyrannical government. Lena agrees, escaping her father's house despite his protestations, and she is pulled into a world beyond anything she imagined. Before Miranda, Lena didn't know that magic existed apart from her own curse. Now she sees apparitions in the woods that try to lead her astray. She stumbles into a complex network of magical allegiances and enemies, never sure who to trust. Everyone she meets seems to tell her that that other person is a liar and a traitor. Lena also finds a new understanding of her curse. In this world of blood magic, with enemies chasing her and her life on the line, killing people with a touch can have its advantages. And Lena begins to grapple with her own power, especially when she is promised much, much more. There's also a romance subplot here and a classic bisexual love triangle. At first, Lena felt like a helpless character, being pulled from one situation to the next. Who she trusted felt arbitrary and was often just the last person she spoke to. But this fit into the fairy tale aspects of the story, being in a dark magical woods, being lost, not knowing which magical being to trust. As she gets used to the world, though, we start to see a different side to Lena, one who is angry and wants to wield power. She is resentful of the life she's had and of feeling guilty all the time for her curse. So it's a bit of a revenge story and a story about righteous anger. This really pulled me in, and it ends on an epic battle that brings all these disparate story elements and characters together. 
If you like dark fairy tale reimaginings, definitely give this one a try. I do want to give content warnings for cutting. This world uses blood magic, so it comes up a lot. And that is Briar Girls by Rebecca Kim Wells, which shouldn't be mixed up with another book out today that is The Grimrose Girls, which is also a queer YA fantasy book. And I am really amused that they put them out on the same they happen to come out on the same day because I've been getting them mixed up all year. <laughs> I think the Grimrose Girls got moved back a week because I had oh, it down okay. for today too and then just went to look it up yesterday while I was reorganizing stuff and it had been moved. But it was like very recently that they moved it. That's a good call then. And I do wonder if it was for that reason. Yeah. And I read the Grimrose Girls, which I enjoyed oh. quite a bit. So I will have to read <laughs> Briar Girls. Though those wacky pub dates, <laughs> they're keeping me on my toes. Uh, my next pick is A Certain Appeal by Vanessa King. This is a contemporary retelling of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. As you've heard me mentioned before, I have never read Pride and Prejudice. And honestly, if they didn't mention it on the book, I'm not entirely certain I would like recognize that these were Pride and Prejudice retellings. Except like in the case like this where the characters are named, you know, Elizabeth Bennet and, and Darcy. But I just love it, you know. And then... Because I've I know so much about Pride and Prejudice, like I know the the basic gist of the story. But this oh, this is such a charming book, and I just loved it to pieces. It's about Liz Bennett, who was an interior designer, and there was a horrible ending to her career. Now she is an executive assistant by day at a tech firm and a stage kitten by night at a club called Meryton, Manhattan's most famous burlesque venue. I just love, I just love everything about that sentence I just said. And at this club, Liz Bennett meets Will Darcy. Sparks fly. But of course, because this is a Pride and Prejudice retelling, he does manage to offend her. And now she thinks he's a big jerk. But their two best friends, Charles and Jane, become involved. So now they have to see each other all the time and pretend to make nice. Complicating things more is the form of a handsome stranger who tells Liz bad things about Darcy despite the fact that as she gets to know him, she's getting to like him. And also the club's future is in jeopardy. So what is she going to do? Maybe it's time to brush off her interior design dreams and try again. This book is so much fun. So much fun. And like I mentioned, it's set in present day. So it's just great. The sexy times are smoking hot and they involve consent and protection, which made them even sexier in my opinion. The sex is on the page, but it's not super explicit. I love that the dancers were called stage kittens. Like, you know me, I love the word kitten. Everything is better with kitten. Accountant kittens, trash kittens, plague kittens. Everything sounds better with kitten. One of my problems with Pride and Prejudice retellings, having not read the novel, I will still make this assertion. I always find that Darcy is like kind of eh, not like worth the effort. They, he always comes off as like a super jerk, like for the whole book. But this is not the case in this book. I really like Darcy. There's witty banter. You will have witty banter up to your eyeballs. It's not condescending in any way to the dancers or their choice of career. There are prominent queer characters. Everything about this was a delight. I do want to give content warnings for classism and mentions of sexual assault. It is A Certain Appeal by Vanessa King. My reader secret is that I read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies before I read Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) Are you confused now when you read uh, retellings? Like, why aren't they eating that person's face? (laughs) Like a little bit. (laughs) And I I like retellings more than I like the actual Pride and Prejudice now that I've read. 
Pride yeah. and Prejudice. I don't know. Yeah. I just like, I like when people play with those characters more yeah. than I liked the first one. <laughs> well, I have a Pride and Prejudice and Zombie Secret that I'll have to tell you after the show. Ooh. <laughs> after I'd spoiled the ending of The Collective for you. so now we are going to hear from our next sponsor today's episode is brought to you by underlined haven't read a natasha preston thriller yet we dare you to try she's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like the seller and the fear the new york times and usa today best-selling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers so her newest book titled the dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very very wrong this is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare the dare is now available wherever books are sold you can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary, you know what I mean? Pick up the dare by Natasha Preston and thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Scribner. Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman is a collection of seven stories in which characters pursue their obsessions on paths to glory and destruction, while all around them their worlds twist and warp, oscillating between reality and impossibility. On display throughout is Cotman's ability to reveal truths about the human experience, about things like friendship, love, betrayal, bitterness, all through whimsy, horror, and fantasy. Elegiac in tone, imaginative, and humorous in their execution, the character-driven stories in Weird Black Girls challenge, incite, and entertain. The author's last book was named one of NPR's Best Books of the Year and was a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award, with reviews appearing in the New York Times, Wired, BuzzFeed, and Locus, among other publications. Definitely make sure to check out Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman. And thanks again to Scribner for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Danica, what do you have next for us? Yeah, I have the 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance comic book revised and expanded by Gord Hill. So this book actually came out last week, but no one talked about it, so I'm taking it. It was originally published in 2010, and I read that version not long afterwards. I really appreciated the original, so I was excited to pick up this expanded version. And this revised version includes stories from 2010 up to the present day, and it's also in color. The 2010 version is black and white and has a sort of zine aesthetic, which is great, but this is an oversized full-color version that is really striking. The illustrations are detailed and eye-catching with rich colors, so I definitely think it's worth it to go for the, the revised version. This is a graphic history book that describes the colonization of the Americas and indigenous resistance to it. Obviously, 500 years of resistance to colonization over two continents is a lot to cover, so each section is pretty short, ranging from a page to a handful of pages. It gives you the outline of some of the biggest conflicts in different areas, which will hopefully inspire readers to explore them in more depth. Together, though, they form a narrative that is desperately needed, especially in a school setting, I feel like. 
Because even when colonialism is taught about or discussed in non-Indigenous spaces, it tends to frame Indigenous people as objects being acted upon, a list of terrible things that happen to Indigenous people. And these comics give back agency, showing that Indigenous people have been resisting for hundreds of years and continue to, whether that's through warfare, protests, occupation of lands, or political strategizing. Also, by being a colorful comic format, it makes the information much more accessible than a dense history book. I would not recommend reading this in one or two sittings like I did, because the comics have a lot of information to condense, and it can be a lot to take in at once, especially with all the names and places mentioned. And more importantly, this does not shy away from the brutal tactics of genocide, and reading about them all back-to-back can be overwhelming. So do go in aware of that and that it discusses murder, rape, torture, and other disturbing content. Despite having read a fair bit about the colonization of the Americas at this point in my life, every book, especially those by Indigenous authors, shocks me in the new depths and horrors of initial colonization as well as recent colonial tactics that I wasn't previously aware of. But this also explores the rich cultures and civilizations of indigenous peoples across the Americas, and it describes the many victories, even if small or temporary, that get erased in more simplified tellings. It's also packed full of interesting information in general. Like, I learned that in the Mayan city of Romina, they had a string of terrible male leaders that were succeeded by Lady Kuali, and after her reign, they began a matrilineal system of descent, because apparently she was such a successful leader that they decided to just switch strategies and stick with women from now on, which is amazing. And... Also, I am mad that I am just now learning about Ganyake, which is G-A-N-I-E-N-K-E-H, which I definitely recommend looking up. It's a territory that was successfully reclaimed by the Mohawk people and is to this day an independent sovereign territory. They are a dry community and they have a school, lumber mill, golf course, bingo hall. It's not a reservation. It operates outside of U.S. or Canadian control, and it was a result of them occupying their own unceded lands. That is an amazing story, and I can't believe that I didn't know about it before. The recent additions from 2010 onwards are especially inspiring, and it's well worth picking up this new version, even if you read the older one. It shows a growing coalition and network of support, especially across Canada, which has mobilized huge acts of resistance and solidarity. I think if you're living on occupied land, it's your responsibility to at the very least know about its history, and this is a great place to start or to supplement your education. And that's The 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance comic book revised and expanded by Gord Hill. All right. My last pick today is... Bibliophile, Diverse Spines by Jamise Harper and Jane Mount. This is not one that I have managed to see the finished product of, but I did see some illustrations online, and it's just absolutely beautiful. This is a collaboration between the founder of Diverse Spines. Diverse Spines is an Instagram account that highlights books by black women and women of color, and Jane Mount is an illustrator and author and the creator of Ideal Bookshelf, which makes awesome gifts for book lovers. 
this book, you you probably first of all you probably know Jane Mount's work. Uh, she writes she writes she draws these incredible illustrations of the spines of books, and and they're so adorable and clear and sharp, just amazing. Because like they're kind of cartoony, but not really, and they're just awesome. And you can get a personalized one, like you can order through her website, like get your a list of your favorite books together and and get one, which I've always wanted to do. I've not done it yet, but I've always wanted to do that. So you'll recognize her work. It's often imitated now, but uh, she's just, Jane Mount is incredible. And this is such a great partnership because, you know, so many of these books need to be brought to people's attention because they're so great and they're often overlooked. I love the two of them. This book was supposed to come out uh, several weeks ago and the pub date got moved, but they've still started their book tour together. Like they're doing a few in-person events and both Jamise and Jane just seem so excited and happy to be, like, they met for the first time for this tour, and I've just been, like, watching some of the events, and the energy is just fantastic, and I just love when people are excited about books, basically. I was going to talk about this book. We're doing the holiday gift book show in a few more weeks, and I was going to talk about it then, but this book is so cool. It's coming out today. I don't think that, you know, it's going to make it to holiday shopping. If you want one, you should grab a copy or 10 now because it'll make a really great gift. It's just beautiful. It's a perfect gift for book lovers. And be sure to go to Instagram and you can follow Diverse Spines and Jane underscore Mount and check out all the cool work that they're doing there. So this is Bibliophile, Diverse Spines by Jamise Harper and Jane Mount. Those illustrations are so beautiful. I've always wanted like a painting of them. I did a terrible job describing them, but she's just, you'll just have to look them up. She's awesome. Yeah, just look them up. All right, so my last pick is The Reckless Kind by Carly Heath. I love the super queer and completely unique YA book. It's set in 1904 Norway, and it follows three point-of-view characters, Aster, Gunnar, and Erland. Aster is an asexual and probably a romantic girl who's deaf in one ear and has Wardenburg syndrome. She doesn't really fit into their small town, but she finds community and meaning in theater. And that's where she befriends Gunnar and Erland. Gunnar is a fugal stud, a heathen family. They're vegetarians, they don't go to church, and they're generally considered outsiders. They're also the only place to get your horses shooed and the town's de facto veterinarians. Gunnar also loves the theater, and after growing close with Erland through acting, they start a secret romance. Erland comes from a wealthy French family who shower him in money, like by building the playhouse for him, but also expect him to uphold their family's values and behave in a particular way. Erland has no interest in these expectations, though, or his wealth. He is devoted to Gunnar, and nothing else matters to him. In short succession, though, the three find themselves in a very difficult situation. So this all happens in the first few chapters. Gunnar's mother dies. Gunnar loses his arm in the same accident. Their family's farm is in debt, and they're going to lose it soon. Aster breaks off her engagement to a man she has no feelings for, and he attacks Gunnar in his rage, seriously injuring and possibly paralyzing him. And then Erland walks away from his family and their money to stay with Gunnar. So after all that... Now it's just the three of them trying to figure out how to survive and how to save the Fugelstead farm. I was fascinated by how this book is simultaneously completely unique and yet feels familiar. Like, what could be more wholesome than a plan to save the family farm? 
especially when the only answer is for them to win the annual horse race to take home the cash prize. I saw this being pitched on TikTok as queer found family and we've got a horse race to win, which is such a great one sentence encapsulation. I love the family they built together, taking care of each other even when it's difficult. I do want to give some content warnings for violence, injury, and suicide ideation. More specifically, Gunnar has a very difficult time adjusting to his disability, and he makes frequent morbid jokes and considers himself a burden to the people around him. The author mentions in the author's note that she drew on her own experience with lumbar spine trauma and wanted to represent the whole complex experience of disability and chronic pain. This is a fascinating and heartwarming read that I think would be perfect for the holidays. It builds up to the Christmas horse race, and the themes of found family are perfect for the colder months when you just want something cozy. Even though this deals with prejudice, violence, and grief, it's a hopeful book that also celebrates queer platonic relationships and queer love in general. At one point, someone accuses Aster of being unsentimental because she has no interest in a romantic or sexual relationship. And she says, I'm the most sentimental person in this blasted town, and truthfully, that's my curse. It really shows Aster as a passionate, loving person, and that love isn't restricted to romantic or sexual relationships. She just wants to live with her best friends and be surrounded by pet pigs and horses and dogs, and that is a beautiful vision. Dahlia Adler at LGBTQ Reads sometimes recommends the queerest book to ever queer, and this would be my pick for that category of the books I've read this year, and that is The Reckless Kind by Carly Heath. Okay, now that you've given us that amazing synopsis of the book, I do need to point out that this one also just got kicked down the road. No! So (laughs) it's not coming. It it says the ninth, but I think this is like the third time it's been moved, so fingers crossed. (laughs) pre-order it now it's worth it (laughs) seriously it's so hard because i mean they they change like what like while we're sitting here i mean some of them you know it's wild yeah especially when you're trying to read and i already had i read loveless by alice oseman read that loved it It it's supposed to come out today and then it got moved to like february or something so yeah (laughs) i can't replace them as fast as i moved them I was going through the November 2nd titles in my document yesterday, and I removed, like, 45 of them. Jeez. I had, like, 200 for today, and I removed a lot. Uh, and a lot of them are not coming out until late spring next year, early spring, late spring. There was one, I think it was Dimitri Martin's story collection. It says it's coming out in, like, 2024. So Oof. I was like, that's a ways away. But, you know... It happens. Yeah. I guess they're all gambling with the supply chain stuff, trying to yeah. like, figure out what's going to be in place when. Yeah. So those are our new picks. What are you going to read next? I'm going to read Squad by Maggie Takuda Hall and Lisa Sterl. Pretty sure that has already been talked about on the podcast, but yeah. I'm so excited about it. Werewolf, queer, YA graphic novel cheerleaders it's gonna be great (laughs) yeah we talked about it last week it's a great read for this time of year yeah Uh, and it's really fun you're gonna like it what are you reading i just got my hands on del wed's destiny by tomi obaro which comes out on june 28th of next year it's a novel about four friends from college who go through all kinds of trials and tribulations in their lives. I can't tell quite from the description if some of them are speaking or not, but uh, 30 years later, they all end up getting back together at some kind of reunion, and we see what happens, you know, when they're all in the same room again. Sounds really fun. 
So that is it for us this week, book lovers. Uh, Be sure to check out Adaptation Nation, which you can find on your podcatcher of choice starting November 1st. Thank you to our sponsors. We love all you do for us. Thank you to our audio editor, Jen Zink. We love all you do for us. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com. You can find us online. Danica is lesbary, L-E-S-B-R-A-R-Y. I mostly hang out on Instagram at friends and comes alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash allthebooks, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recommendations or just general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy Happy reading. reading!